Hi, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 88 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a new episode released every single day. You get an extended interview like this one every Monday and short four or five minute daily episodes Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Loads of classic rock content for you classic rock fans. Now, if this is your first time listening, then please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day, and you can only get all those episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed, so give it a like or a subscribe separately on there too, please. And also check out the YouTube channel where you can see all the wonderful guests I've interviewed over the many years I've been doing Vintage Rock Pod on there in video format. Now, today's interview is with one of the greatest guitarists of our time, Mr. Scary himself, George Lynch. With a career spanning over four decades, Lynch has become a household name in the rock and metal scene with his unique playing style and iconic sound. He's the mastermind behind many legendary bands such as Dokken, Lynch Mob and now Sweet and Lynch and has collaborated with some of the biggest names in the industry. I'm so looking forward to you hearing my chat with him, but quickly before that, I just want to apologise for being a bit absent lately. Yes, the daily shows have been released, as always, they've been ticking over, but I'll be honest, I've had a crazy busy month with work or so, a short holiday, kids off school, that sort of thing. I know, I know, excuses, excuses, but it's seen me have no time for social media or the email newsletters or to reply to your emails too, so I'm really sorry if you've not heard from me. I'll try my best to catch up. It also means that there might be a couple of weeks without the big interview shows, as I've literally not had time to record any new ones lately. I'm going to reach out to my contacts to see if I can squeeze anything in, but it's just a heads up just in case. But... Let's get back to George Lynch then. He's quite rightly held up in the same esteem as the likes of Randy Rhodes and Jakey Lee and company, people from the 80s era who could play guitar above the best. This interview then, we talk about a wide range of topics from his career, and I put your questions to him as well. So thank you very much to everyone who reached out with questions for George. Sometimes fan questions can be better than what I come up with, so thank you so much. Uh, we talk about, of course, Dokken, his thoughts on a reunion, his current relationship with the other members of the band including Don. There's chat about the new Lynch Mob album coming later this year, how he tried to get two other guitar legends together for what could be an incredible collaboration. We talk about the custom guitars he builds and how that business of his makes him so proud, probably more proud than anything else he's done, seeing as though he came from a background of being homeless and jobless before hitting the big time. But we start with his new collaboration with Striper lead singer Michael Sweet. It's the third album the band have worked on together, the two of them, and it's under the banner of Sweet and Lynch, and this record is called Heart and Sacrifice. It's set for release on May 19th, and the first single is out there, so you can listen to it now. It's called You'll Never Be Alone, so please do check that out. So here you go. I hope you enjoy this chat with George Lynch, who has a very dry sense of humour. This is the third album you two have collaborated on. The first two, Only to Rise and uh, Unified, were 2015, 2017. So it's been a few years, hasn't it, since you guys have worked together. What was it that, that got you back in the in the room and recording and writing together again then? Uh, we had to pay the rent. <laughs> uh, no, uh, when I started this thing where I do a lot of projects and work with other people, you know, some years ago on a, on a steady basis, um, there's always like this testing of the waters period where you check out the chemistry and see if it's worthwhile. And, um, you know, we, uh, we, Michael and I have a, a certain kind of chemistry and I think it's analogous to maybe the closest thing I can think of is to the, uh, docking chemistry okay. because, uh, 
you know, my style and his style kind of add up to that same kind of thing. A little, you know, a little harder edged, uh, more exploratory uh, 80s music. It's it's like, uh, you know, you have the melodies and you have the accessible grooves and, it's, you know, that kind of music generally. But it also, you know, we veer off and go into other areas once in a while. Uh, big hooks and all that. So I think it's really the same formula we were going after in docking, docking, but just, uh, you know, slightly different, obviously, because, we, you know, Michael's got a little different voice than Don. Yeah. And that, but, you know, it's a good formula. It's very satisfying in it. And it's kind of interesting, the label that I work with um, on these, a lot of these records, Frontiers, um, is very opinionated about what <laughs> they offer their fans. They're really geared, which I think you probably know that they're geared towards uh, that genre of music. Uh, so, for instance, when I deliver a record, whether it's Sweet Lynch or, or, or Lynch Mob or another record, um, where most labels will just be, you know, they leave it up to the artist to decide creatively what they want, where they want, what they want people to look at and listen to, uh, and what kind of songs they want to write. Frontiers is a little more hands on. So um, they're buying a product. So when I, so I have to look at it that way as well. Michael and I look at it that way. Like, look, they're expecting a certain thing, you know, and, um, and we have to be responsible in that sense. And also, I have to say that, you know, my natural inclinations is to go off and do music that's more challenging to myself and maybe the listener a little bit and, you know, explore other areas. Uh, but Frontiers will rein me in. So that's what that's what happened. Actually, they rejected seven of the songs. Uh, yes. And that's to me in my life in 45 years of recording records. I've never had a record company say, Oh, that song's not good enough. You have to do a different song. I was really shocked, but um, I think it was good for me and good for the record. In hindsight, I wasn't incredibly happy at the moment, but but they were right, you know. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually because I think Michael had said that the the album had gone through periods of change. I think is the way he put it. Um, so, so when something like that happens and the music you've put forward and the label turn around and say no, I mean, as you said, they weren't too happy at the time. But what was your thought process then about coming up with something different? I mean, how do you channel that? Well, first, it's it's like the you know all the stages of grief. You know, you have grief, and then <laughs> you know denialism, and then sort of acceptance and then you got to figure out how to get through it, you know, logistically and so forth. Uh, and uh, so I had to recalibrate uh, the way I approached the next writing, you know, process. So uh, writing this next batch and actually I, I, I when I wrote the next batch, which is uh, uh, actually they, we, we've, we got it down to four songs that they want to rewritten. They rejected two of those. Um, so I really had to work at it, but what I had to make sure I did with myself was I wasn't, I wanted to make sure I wasn't coming from a place of ego. Like I'm George Lynch and all my songs are good enough. Fuck you. You know what I mean? It's like, well, maybe they're right. You know, maybe these aren't necessarily good or bad songs. They're just not right for this record. <laughs> and that was probably true. So I think I learned a good lesson there, you know, how to think a little bit more clearly when I'm writing. Cause sometimes I'm in there and I'm just, I don't have any direction. I'm just sort of like, you know, I, there's nobody there telling me what to do, you know? 
So I'm just kind of sometimes ha- having too much fun, you know. <laughs> Good lesson. And um, just talking about the album itself again, Michael had said something about the, the album being diverse and complex and, and flows beautifully. And can, can you elaborate on that? Give us a, a taste of what we can expect from Hearts and Sacrifice. Well, you know, after having said everything I just said, we do have a, you know, half the record is that commercial, melodic, hard rock thing. Um, but the other half is what I personally have a little more fun with. And I think Michael did too, is, you know, a little edgier stuff. And, um, and that's all there. And I think you have to have that because that, that makes the, 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 the more commercial melodic stuff more acceptable especially to guys if they buy a record and they go, oh, I got some flowery stuff on there, but they got some art stuff too. And Lynch is tearing it up and Michael's, you know, killing it and singing high or whatever they like. So, you know, uh, there's a good balance on the record. I think definitely. And our, and both of our favorite songs on there is not in the initial, you know, single releases. Uh, and, uh, but it will be, I think, uh, probably down the line it'll get released as a, a probably I think a lyric video or something like that. Well, that's interesting to hear. Better enough. Uh, you're a busy man, as you said. I mean, this album itself, uh, Heart and Sacrifice, is coming out on uh, May the 19th, and you can pre-order it now. You can get it on, on streaming, of course, but uh, there will be physical copies as well of this, and that's what people like these days. We want a, want a CD, but I think there's a double vinyl as well, things like that. Now, how, how involved are you in things like that, or is it all Frontiers? Uh, depends on the record. On this record, um, I was not hands-on beyond anything. Uh, beyond once I once I write the music, that's pretty much it for me. I mean, I hear what Michael's doing, and but that's his world, you know. I trust him to do his thing, and he'll ask me what I think, and and I, vice versa. I do the same with him, and we both get each other's you know approval on stuff, but. You know, I'm not writing words. I'm not. I'm not coming up with video concepts. Uh, and I'm not coming up with art concepts at all. Um, that's the label and whoever that they have on there. You know who they've hired or who's ever in the company doing that, running that stuff. On other records, I do. For instance, like Lynch Mob record, we just uh, we just finished up called Babylon. That's coming out in the fall, and that's the opposite. I've had everything to do with everything. <laughs> You know, art and video and, 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 and all the, you know, choice of songs, everything from soup to nuts, A to Z. I'm super hands on, as are other people. But So it just really depends on the project. You know, some projects, it's interesting, too. Uh, and I'm not just saying this with this particular label, but, uh, but other labels I work with. Um, in some instances, I can just be a guitar player that they've hired to write songs and play guitar. And that's my job. I'm a, I'm a, I'm just a hired gun, and I get paid to do that, and then I walk away. So there are projects like that, you know, that, that I, I'm not I'm not supposed to be involved. And then there's things like Lynch Mob that I own that I've had for you know you know 30, 40 years that you know I am absolutely. Uh, meticulously hands-on so depends on the project and you mentioned the, the new record there for lynch mob i mean um it's coming out in the fall can you tell us a bit more about that i mean is, is only involved in, in the lead singer on that one still no we have it we have a gen, uh, fairly new band uh jaron galino uh on bass uh gabriel cologne 
uh, singer and uh, Jimmy DeAnda on drums, who we've been together for many, many years. So um, it's kind of a half older school guy, me and Jimmy, and then the other half is the younger cats. But they're great, and we get along great, and it's family. And I think really that's what, besides what the sound of Lynch Mob is, it's it's really for me personally. Uh, I I don't have any friends unless I have a band, so I have a lot of bands. So I have, that way, I have a lot of friends. That's why I, I do what I do. So I mean, half kidding, but but we are we really have fun, and I think that's really important. Uh, we're genuinely all kind of on the same page, and we go out there and we kill. And, and I love it. I mean, I, I view us primarily as a live band. That's my touring vehicle. And um, uh, we tour as much as we can. And um, and the and the younger guys, you know, Jaron and Gabe are, I mean, fit like they fit like a glove, you know. And I've tried really hard to sort of eliminate the baggage from the old school stuff. You know, a lot of, a lot of times you got to be careful with these legacy bands because they can come with a lot of baggage and it's debilitating and it's negative energy. And I just don't care to deal with any of that at my point in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. We're all just happy to be where we are and not having to, you know, work down on the mines and die in a black lung at 52. Indeed. We are blessed. We are blessed. And in terms of that record itself, I mean, if we've got a name for it, can we we hear what the name is and things like that? Oh, Babylon. Fantastic. So we look forward to hearing that in the fall. That sounds brilliant. Um, and just a few questions from my listeners and subscribers as well, if you don't mind, George. Um, got the first one here from uh, Blazing Fretboard. Great name. He says, when did you first start designing and building your own equipment? Super gradual process because when I was young, I would just kind of take things apart and put them back together in different ways and learn by trial and error how to do things, sort of. Um, I'm not a luthier. Uh, I, I did take a year-long luthier class, and I do know some things. I can't build guitars from scratch, not not well enough that I would sell it to anybody. Feel confident that I could sell it to anybody, but I make make it for myself. But I, I have some help. But um, uh, what happened was in about, I guess, twelve or thirteen years ago, I was sort of uh, because of health reasons, I was not able to really do much. And I was in a wheelchair and I started, uh, uh, I set up a little shop at ESP and I started taking ESPs and just remodeling basically, you know, essentially uh, just taking the paint off. And I was doing crazy stuff. Like I was, I did this one where I put it, <clears throat> I made the pickup cavity, a, a grave, like a, a coffin for a, for a dried dead bat lined with roses. And then the piping was barbed wire from an old, you know, cowboy fence that I, countersunk into the edge of the body and did all this kind of specific painting and staining and had these bones and I would add bones to it. It was sort of macabre, but cool. And, you know, snake skin and things like that, really organic elements, um, just kind of a desert vibe is what I was going for. And, um, and, and I ended up thinking, well, you know, somebody asked me a, a, a friend uh, that's uh, works at Victoria's secrets, actually. I used to send me lingerie. I don't know why. I didn't wear it. <laughs> uh, uh, he was vice president of uh, Victoria's Secret. See, a little bit of dough. And he's going, hey, I, I saw those things you're making. He goes, would you sell me one? I, go, I, I hadn't thought of that. I was just doing it to do it. And I did. I sold him the first one I did, which is pretty cool. 
And um, he ended up buying like five more over, you know, a few years. And I go, well, maybe I should do this. So I kept learning more. I took the luthier class for a year, um, you know, and uh, I got better and better at it. And I think, um, and I started my own thing with the blessing of ESP, which is shocking. I'm a 37 year endorsee, their number one endorsee, and they're allowing me to do this kind of boutique thing on the side, which is very gracious of them. And I appreciate that. And now I have a shop in California and, um, a guy that works with me and um, we do a pretty good, it's a pretty good little business. It's, it's really, really fun. And um, it's, uh, uh, I, it's like meditation. Uh, uh, this is my wife's in the, my wife has a yoga school or a yoga place, whatever you call it, a yoga place. She has this yoga uh, business. And uh, she always tries to get me to meditate, and I don't. I can't meditate. I'm just like, I, I, my mind's just going all over the place. And I go, I'm just terrible at this. I suck. And then she was talking to me one day, and she was describing meditation, and I was like, but wait a minute, that's what I do when I'm playing guitar, or when I'm building guitars. You know, we all have something like that. I think where we just forget about time and space, and we're just so in the moment. You don't think about where you are. You're just immersed in it. That's it. And I told her that, and she's she's like, yeah, actually, I think you're right. I think that's what what that is. So when I do these guitars, like um, like this is this is an ESP. This is one, but, but I do a similar thing like this, you know, where I do a distressed barn kind of finish, and then I'll put bones and snakeskin in it, and do all kinds of other goofy stuff, wood burning stuff. They're all different. And uh, when I'm going through that process, and I have my router, or my Dremel tool, or my paints and my stains and stuff. It's just like painting a picture, you know, and so you just get completely into it because you have this flow and you have this vision and you want to make it right. So it's like writing a song or conceiving of a solo or performing live on stage when you're having a good night and you're immersed in the moment. It's transcendent and it's just, a, um, I think, a very healthy thing. Yeah. And I feel very fortunate. Very healthy for the soul, definitely. Yeah, and and uh, on the flip side of the, uh, the coin, it's a it's a business too. Which you know, uh, you know, supports my family, and and I feel you know, I love the game, you know, I love the music game, and anything related to it, business wise, it is really a fun thing, you know. I, I get into it, and I know other people like that, and I know people don't like to talk about that part of it, the music game, but it is interesting and fun to deal with all that too. So on that level, it's like I feel proud of that that I you know. I have a ninth grade education and and was literally homeless and been poor for, you know, my whole early period of my life, living out of my car, living with friends, having zero. And I say I picked my, myself up my own bootstraps. But I had no education. I could never get a job. I got fired from every job. I've had 100 different jobs and never thought I'd be a professional musician. And ended up now I'm at the point where I have this business, which I know isn't probably a huge big deal to a lot of people, but for me, I'm very, very, very proud of that fact that even though I don't know everything, I have this little business that I created that's kind of unique and, and actually is profitable and cool and makes people happy. I don't know. It's it's probably one of the things I'm most proud of in my life. So it's 
fantastic. It's fantastic to hear this sort of stuff. And on your website, georgelynch.com, there's a little section on there about Mr. Scary Guitars, and you can get to see some of your designs you've done and things like that. And it's some wonderful to check out just about the things you've been talking about there. It's, it's brilliant to see. Yeah, man. I, I'm very fortunate and want to I remind myself that every day when I, when I want to complain. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the next question I've got here is from uh, Carmen, Carmen Holtz. It says, for years we've dreamed of Mr. Scary, Jakey Lee and Warren Demartini doing something together, an album, a tour, brackets, please, please, please. You guys are all part of that special group of players from that era, though we've sadly lost Eddie and Randy. What's the chances of you three collaborating? Uh, well, I, I, if I was betting on it, I would say not great. Uh, probably not going to happen. I would say 80-20. 8515 not going to happen. Uh and the reason is is because we did get together for a uh a photo shoot uh some years back and um you know it came up and we all said yeah that's you know sure let's think about that. And I'm a real proactive guy. So I I kind of on everybody after that following up trying to make it happen. And it went absolutely nowhere. And we've had probably two or three three rounds of that you know i run into jakey at a show we talk about we get on the phone we bring it up again we go how can we make this happen i try to get a hold of warren warren you know we we kick around a little bit and he's like wow 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 you know you can't make people do things they don't want to do this is very true this is very true it'd be really interesting to hear how the three of you could collaborate on 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 record or something like that it'd be very interesting to hear indeed yeah i don't know my, I don't know if we're all too similar, you know, in a way that might be not great, but I mean, cause uh, I remember when I did this, uh, I did this, might remember this hearing aid thing, you know, a long, long time ago. And it's like all these guitar players, you know, right? and we're all playing on the same track and we all had, and they edited it. So everybody's got, you know, their little few seconds and then switches to the other guy. And it was just this giant cacophony mess you know, because everyone was trying to play like extra fast because Ingay was there. He was the new guy, not the guy. And it was just like, just horrible. So I think it's important if you're going to do a record like that, you would want to make sure you have distinct, um, you know, you can really tell who who's playing, you know, otherwise it's just a this mismatch, mishmash of, you know, notes. <laughs> and, and Warren and I have similar styles, I think, but. Uh, and we all do, but, uh, you know, you have to be careful of that. It's just like, and how many people are really interested in that? Oh, I'm sure to, plenty. I'm know. sure plenty. Absolutely. Maybe. <laughs> uh, the next question I've got then is uh, from Steve Murray. He says, Beast from the East Live is one of the greatest displays of guitar work ever. You clearly steal the show. What are your memories of that tour in Japan? Could you feel at the time what you guys were doing on stage was so special? Well, I, th I think Beast of the East captured the kind of the apex of Dawkins ability and all the years and years of touring we'd done. And that was recorded at the very tail end of the longest tour that we ever did after all those, you know, dec that decade of touring. Um, we'd done some massive tour, which was like this, I think it was Aerosmith in the States and then somebody else in the States and went to Europe with ACDC. And then we went to Japan <laughs> And we were just, we just didn't stop. It was crazy. And um, we were starting to, the fatigue was starting to set in, I think, you know, mentally and everything else, physically and stuff. But 
we hadn't quite broke down yet. And I think that was the apex of our abilities as a band. I think we were at the top of our game right around that era. So I think it was I'm glad we recorded it. You know, it, it really is a testament to what a band can do uh, if they put, put the work in, you know, because quite honestly, when we first started out, we <laughs> weren't that good. And we just kept working at it, you know, we were very uh, self-critical, you know, so, and we knew our weaknesses and our strengths and we tried to, you know, work at improving ourselves as a band. We would go out every night uh, and watch the headliner because we basically opened up for everybody else. We we weren't a headliner yet. And uh, we would always try to figure out the mechanics of why the headliner was the headliner we weren't you know and go into the weeds and try to figure it out and just make little improvements every night we listen to the board tape we discuss it we talk to our sound man we just kept trying and trying and trying you know when we finally got our chance to headline a little bit we were ready you know we were really very hungry for it you know we wanted to be yeah, it's fascinating to hear, actually, because you don't often hear about bands, um, almost a thought process behind something like that, because a lot of bands you hear about, especially from those kind of days, it was all excess, so kind of go on stage, do your party thing, and then go off and go and drink and do this, that. So for you guys to have put that much thought into it and be premeditated in terms of watching and learning, that's that's quite interesting to, to hear that kind of thing went on. Well, we did the other thing, too. We, yes. <laughs> yeah, we're a very well-balanced band. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we did both. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were at the, at, at the end of the day, we were very serious about what we were doing. I mean, we, you know, we, we had this kind of vision of what we wanted to be and what the impression we wanted to make on people, physical impression we wanted to make on people live. And, and you know, and, uh, you know, we were hungry and we wanted to be the best band in the world. And, um, uh, it was just, uh, you know, we got to the point where we kind of reached a peak where I don't think we could have done much more with what we had to work with, if that makes any sense. And uh, and we captured that in a moment, you know, on stage, which was pretty cool. And did you know you were going to, again, was this premeditated to record this and put this out as an album or is it just something you did off the cuff? Yeah, no, it was, you know, they had the recording trucks and everything. We recorded, I think, two nights make sure that we had it. I can't, it's been a while. Uh, but yeah, no, we, it was all intentional and it was, you know, uh, there was a lot involved in that. Yeah. Good stuff. And you talk about that being pro- probably the apex. It might have answered this next question from Corbin Shields. He said, uh, uh, what would you consider to be your defining moments in Dokken, both musically and personally? Defining moment? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I wish I had a, a good answer for you. There really wasn't, I don't think, that I can think of a moment. I mean, Dokken was uh, our art. That whole Dokken experience was really just an incremental by degrees thing. Everything was so gradual. You know, our getting signed, you know, we got signed to a little label in Europe through a publishing deal we had in Germany, which led to a record with a record company in France. And then the record came out just in a limited way and it didn't, and it failed. And then it got picked up within the next year by an American company. And then, then we got dropped from that company. (laughs) 
And then we got re-signed to it later on down the road. So it was just this incremental thing. We started out touring very slowly in Europe and then we kind of built up and got on better, better shows. Then we got big management and that was okay. I would say that actually thinking about it and talking about it, when we got Q prime management, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Minch to manage us, that was probably the one biggest factor in our success. I will say that because they managed and Queensryche and I don't know how many other giant bands, you know, they were the biggest management company in the world and they really believed in us and they would not take no for an answer. And I think they took a mediocre band and made us a huge band because they were who they were. <laughs> so they could get us all the radio stations and they could get us on all the tours and they got us all the publicity and, you know, and got us great record deals and had us fire on all, on all cylinders. So I would give the credit if I had to give the credit to any one entity for our success, it would be Q prime. Fascinating again. Fascinating. Um, the next one is from Mike Pajowski or Pajowski, I think. Uh, he says, I was a huge fan of Dokken, but the first Lynch Mob album, Wicked Sensation, blew my mind, been my favourite record ever since. Two questions. What are your feelings towards the album all these years on? And how did you talk Oni Logan into joining Lynch Mob from Viper? Well, I answered the, the, the last part of the question first. Uh, we were on this kind of worldwide search literally for, you know, to create the best band in the world and, um, and to find the best guys and the singer being the key guy was the most important element. So we had feeders out, we were looking, we're looking and, and uh, I got this cassette with Oni on it. Uh, I think it was, uh, uh, yeah, he was in Ferrari, I believe. And uh, he wasn't Ferrari. And um, so yeah, this, 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 it just, it was him and Ray Gill. That was the two guys I wanted. And, and uh, we're kind of back and forth with Ray. And finally, Ray told me, listen, I'm, I'm, my band is my family and I, I can't I can't leave my guys. And I appreciate that because I feel the same way and I respected that. So I said, OK. Um, so I went after Oni, who was my second choice. And uh, we were all based in Arizona and Oni was in California playing a show at the Whiskey with Ferrari. <laughs> and we all flew out to L.A like a gang and we were going to show up and get our singer. It was really funny. And they knew we were coming and Wendy Dio managed him. She was there and they were ready for a war, a rumble. It was funny. And so we watched Oni, you know, we watched him play. Oni was great. Went backstage. He was there backstage. We're all dressed up in our, you know, early lynch mob clown suits and everything, big hair. And uh, I think the hair was coming down actually a little bit by then. And uh, when Oni came in and Wendy was standing there and she was, ready for a fight she was um, yeah she was not nice and uh i said well my my line that was the the, the great like one-liner was do you want to you want to be in a band called ferrari or you want to drive one <laughs> i was really proud of that yeah. uh so yeah uh but you know the band was really uh I had the catalyst of docking behind me, you know, uh, the recognition and the machine. I kept uh, the label. The label stayed with me, which is electric, Warner Electric. Um, I got really powerful management. Q Prime stayed with Don. 
And, uh, but we had, you know, the, the lawyers, you know, the, the, the publicist, uh, the radio promotion people, we had the whole machine and we had a, a massive record deal, a $1.5 million deal at that time was huge. And uh, we spent every nickel of it on the band. And uh, we lived pretty large and we had fun and we partied and we worked hard and uh, I put a great band together and the stuff just flowed out of that because you put all the right pieces together and then just kind of sit back and watch what's ha what happens. That's kind of what happened. Those songs just flowed out of that amalgam of, you know, musicians. It was really a very natural process. It also took a year and a half to make the record. It wasn't an easy record to make, but <laughs> we knew we it had to be a seminal record and stand the test of time and this and that. We wanted to make a timeless album. And we wanted it to be wall to wall to where you never had to pick up that needle and go to the next track. You were just, you know. So um, I think we succeeded at that. And I think it has stood the test of time to a certain extent. Um, my One of my small regrets is that I didn't get the record done quicker before Nirvana came out and crushed everything. <laughs> but it happens. It happens. You mentioned uh, Wendy there and fierce managers. I mean, you had a um, a brief stint or a run-in or a, I don't know. You you auditioned for Ozzy, did you? Didn't you? Did you have any run-ins with Sharon? Because I've I've spoke to many people that have. Did you uh, ever face the the fierceness of Sharon? Oh yeah, yeah. She was part of the entourage. You know, the whole time I was involved in that camp, which is about a month, and um, she was there the whole time. You know. I definitely interacted with her. Um, she didn't like my guitar. She said it looked like a booger because it was green. Uh, that was kind of an odd thing to be worried about. I mean, like I was painting a guitar. Or I have other guitars that aren't green. <laughs> yeah, constructive yeah. comment and all that, yeah. Yeah. And then they had a problem with, with my hair being short because I... Uh, but I remember Ozzy came to my room one day and, and talked to me about that but the funny interesting thing which i didn't point out to him because it would have been rude was he was bald <laughs> at the time remember that period where he was bald yeah it's like what have you have you looked in the mirror dude well whatever again could have got a wig so they didn't like that they didn't like my booger guitar so oh well Oh, well, indeed. Oh, well, indeed. Uh, last couple of questions. Uh, Kate first with a you not an I. She says, recently Lynch Mob played a couple of shows on the same bill as Dokken. How is the relationship between you and Don these days? Wonderful. We're old men. We don't care. And we're just having, we're out there grateful for where we are and we're having fun. And band sounds great. Don's band sounds great. I go out, you know, Lynch Mob opens up the show. We've been doing this for a few years now and, 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 uh, so Lynch Mob opens the show. We do our thing. Obviously, don't play any Dawkins songs. Dawkins comes out, does his thing. And then I come out at the end of the night and play three or four songs. And it's all kumbaya and everybody's happy. Yeah. It's a good <laughs> That sounds great. And uh, again, it, the question you probably get asked a million times and Barry Werner, Hugh Collins, Trash Can Taster, Harry Williams, John Dunlap, a few others, I won't name them all. They all want to know if you, Don, Jeff, Mick will ever get together and, and do something as as the Dokken. No. In a short, uh, a short version of the answer is no. Uh, uh, the reason is, for one, Mick has retired, sold his drums, got rid of his drums. He's not a 
he doesn't play anymore. Maybe he goes and jams here or there, but, um, and he's kind of, I think for his own mental and physical health, he's just kind of disconnected from the whole world, you know, and we don't, he doesn't return our calls. It's just, that's okay. I think that's probably what he needs needed to do. And I respect that. Uh, it's sad in a way because, you know, we're friends for decades and built something together. We came up together, you know, it was Mick and I before anybody else, before Jeff or Don. So, um, yeah, that's, but I would love to still be friends with them, you know, maintain a relationship, but yeah, that's all right. Um, but, uh, you know, Jeff has been in, I think, foreign for, I don't know, maybe 15 years. Yeah. Doing very, very well. Keeps him very, very busy. And um, we do our side things, you know, different, like DM machine, yeah. which we're working on right now. And, um, other projects, the heavy hitters projects, we do that together. We live down the street from each other. So we're always working together. We love each other. And we always dream of kind of doing something else band wise that we can take out on the road and kind of do that whole dock and building the band process again. Even at our age, we, we talk about that and hope that we'll be able to do that someday. Um, but doing it in the context of dock and I think that ship has sailed and I said in other interviews because, um, We've tried so many times to put it back together and it's like Humpty Dumpty. Uh, Don's got his thing with, you know, he owns a name. He's, he's hired guys that are great and, and he's very happy with that. And they've been together for a lot of years and they service the songs and people dig it. And if it's not broken, why fix it? And, you know, for him to come back into the, into a, a, a true band situation where everything's split up equally and, He's not the king and he's not getting all the lion's share of the money. I think that has something to do with the fact that it probably won't happen. You know, for Jeff and I, we probably do it, but we would do it with Steve Brown, which is Mick's brother, who we use in the end machine on the end machine records. It looks just like Mick plays just like Mick, the younger version. So that would work, but I really don't think it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, it's not I mean, maybe if we were still in our 50s, maybe early 60s, but I'm going to be 69. Don's going to be 70. I mean, I, I do. I would want to make sure that if we did that last record, it would be a great bookend to the whole story. And if it was anything less than that, I don't think it's worth doing because it would be you know, it's rather to leave people with the, the memories of the of the good stuff like, you know first four five albums whatever they were and just leave it at that you know rather than going for a cash grab very true very true indeed well George it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you as we said uh, the new record with yourself and and, and Michael Sweet is out uh, on May 19th it's called Heart and Sacrifice uh, you're always busy you're always doing this that and the other there's loads of new music coming this year as well so we look forward to, to, to following up on that what's the best way of, uh, of fans uh, keeping in touch with you and finding out exactly what you're doing just tell them to call me on my cell <laughs> I'll uh, put the number on the show notes yeah uh uh well, there's, there's, um, uh, my daughter runs, uh, my social media, my, my, uh, middle daughter, Mariah runs my social media. She does a fantastic job. So we're really trying to, you know, stay up to speed with all that stuff. And I'm just trying, trying to stay real involved with my Instagram and my Patreon and my Facebook and all that stuff, even though I'm an older guy and I don't get all that stuff. She helps me a lot with it. So I'm trying to create a lot of content and we make sure we keep all the tour dates and 
and the album releases up to date on there and new pictures and things about the guitar building and all that stuff, videos, just, you know, so uh, Instagram, I think is probably a good source of information. And um, my website, of course, which is a little less current, but uh, there's more guitar stuff on the website. And then uh, if people are interested, they can sign up for my Patreon, which is kind of the inside personal more stuff, you know, in the studio and when I'm doing other stuff, extracurricular activities, and just my daily kind of existence. Yeah. Anybody did that. George Lynch in the garden. Fantastic. That's what we all need in our lives. <laughs> well, George, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and wish you the best of luck for, for everything that comes next. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you. And a big thanks to the wonderful George Lynch there for coming on Vintage Rock Pod and answering your questions too. Check out the new Sweet and Lynch record, which is released May 19th. Get pre-ordering that now through Frontiers, I believe. Keep an eye out later in the year as well when George is back with a new album for The Lynch Mob. Loads going on in the world of George Lynch. Anyway, that's it for me then with this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get all the episodes that are released every single day, remember. Look for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube as well. Check out all the videos that I post from the interviews. You'll see some of these from George Lynch pop up there over the next few days. And there's some bits that don't make the full interviews as well. So even if you are a podcast listener, you may find some things on there that you've not seen or heard before. There's other fun bits too, like a daily classic rock poll that gets well over a thousand votes every single day. Loads of great discussion on there as well. So please do get involved and check it out. Just look for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube. Anyway, I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.